Good morning, everyone. You know, the last time I got up here to preach was in March. And uh, it, was, it was an empty church. There was five people here, and it was for everyone online. I mean, it was for the people here as well, but now here I am, and I get to see, I think, almost 100 people. And even though as we go through these roller coasters and ups and downs of, of lockdowns and staying at home, I never get used to this. In fact, just looking out over everyone, it kind of reminds me and makes me anticipate more and more what we read in Revelation 7, where when everyone finally comes before the, before the throne of God to worship him from every tribe, tongue, and nation, this feels like an anticipation of a reunion that will happen at some point in the future. And so I'm, I'm so excited to be here this morning. Thank you for braving the miserable Newfoundland weather. Yes, I am a come from away as Steve has so eloquently reminded everyone, um, but it's still good to preach to brothers and sisters. So anyway, if uh, you have your Bible with you, we're going to read from James uh, chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. I'm reading from the CSB, uh, and so if you have a phone or a tablet or some sort of digital device that you can change over, that's cool, but if not, if you just have an ESV or another translation, um, try to follow along. Again, that's James chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, <laughs> he is mature, able to control the whole body. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. But consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things. But consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members, it stains the whole body. In fact, it sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but <laughs> no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, but my brothers and sisters, these things should not be. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Or can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt water spring yield fresh water. May the Lord add his reading to the blessing Oh, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. <laughs> now, I'm not going to lie to you. James has been uh, a bit of a minefield for me as I work through from chapters 1 now to chapter 3. It's absolutely challenged me, and I feel like as I, as I walk through it, as I dodge mine after mine, I'm hit constantly with ways that I need to change. And even though, you know, I've never experienced getting hit by mine before, I imagine they hurt a, a lot. Um, but when we get hit by James and hurt by what, uh, you know, not hurt, but 
challenged by what James has to say, I, I, it's definitely a good thing. But you see, James wants to show us, especially in chapter three, as he has in the previous two chapters, that there are markers that we use that we can measure our maturity in Christ. This is the whole reason why James writes his letter. It's to show us what a maturing faith looks like. Except now in chapter three, he's showing us what maturity looks like with the words we use, and not just the words we use, but how we use them, right? This is the focus of James, 3 chap or James chapter three, verses one to 12. And so today we're gonna look at the power and the peril of the tongue. And honestly, that's really just my sermon in a sentence. So if you're taking notes and you wanna write down cool little catchphrases, the power and the peril of the tongue. And I wanna kind of demonstrate to you the power and peril of the tongue through a bunch of examples. I'm gonna use myself and something I experienced many, many, many years ago. And then I'll give us some examples from history. And so grade three, all right, grade three, I had a teacher named Mrs. Daniels. And Mrs. Daniels, had the patience of Job. She was a lovely lady, but one day <laughs> we pushed her way too far. One day, Mrs. Daniels exploded like an atomic bomb. You see, it was the end of the school year and we were acting like a bunch of feral cats. We were just absolutely crazy. And so we got after school detention and this was a time when they actually gave after school detention because you know, they don't do it now anymore. And anyway, she was lecturing us and she wrote on the, on the chalkboard. Now yes, for the students here uh, who don't know what a chalkboard is, it was a big gray or green or black piece of slate or something that you'd use chalk to write on. It wasn't like a whiteboard or anything like that. But she wrote on the chalkboard four letters, four capital letters, J-E-R-K. And she asked us, does anyone know what that says? And I'll, honestly, I'll never forget what, what I heard. Miss, that says jerk. Right, she said. But does anyone know what that means? Man. Miss, that means junior educated rich kids. Right? Junior educated rich kids, and that's not what jerk means. And needless to say, Mrs. Daniels, ooh, she exploded. And I thought I was gonna die that day. I seriously did. Our words put her over the edge. And, and for me in grade three, I really got to see the power and peril of, of the tongue at that day. Oh, junior educated rich kids. But is this not a classic example of James three, right? If you think back, or so when I think back to grade three, uh, one tiny spark set the entire class ablaze. And we all went down in flames that day. But honestly, there's some real gold in these 12 verses. But James is unrelenting in his warnings about how we talk. But honestly, when you get through the thick of it, all right, when, when you, you, you parse through it and you, and you see to what he's actually saying to us, oh, there's some pretty encouraging stuff. You know, I think we'd all agree that James, with James when he says that our tongue can be used for both good and bad. And like I mentioned earlier, I wanna continue this example train. So on the one hand, on the far extreme, we have a guy named Hitler. All right, now, yeah, Matt, that's a pretty extreme uh, example and that's the point of it. He used the power of his speech to call for the murder of 11 million people, right? By simply commanding and, and demanding that this group of people be killed 
11 million Jews, Christians, and gypsies were killed during the Holocaust. But on the flip side, you have a guy named Sir Isaac Asimov. He was a late sci-fi writer, and in the last moments of his life, he looked at his wife, Janet, and said, I love you, Janet. And then you have the whole creation thing when God said, God literally spoke and things happened. I mean, that's pretty cool. But how about this? How about I hate you? I wish you were dead. Or, or what about this? Hey, Pastor Steve, listen, I really got to talk to you. Um, I don't know if you heard about this, but Jack's been cheating on his wife. Now, I don't want you to tell anyone, but it's just something so you can pray about it, okay? Just between you and I. It's just a prayer request. Or maybe it's the things we say when we argue. Or how we say it. Or what we say when we fight with each other. And are we really actually speaking the things we say to demean people? To belittle people? Or just to have the upper hand in in an argument? Or how we bully with our words just to get out of the blame game? But this is why James writes in chapter 3 to challenge us with how we're using our words. It confronts us with behavior that should not be found inside the church. And as we read through James, we're confronted with these measures of maturity. Like we, We always need to be asking ourselves, do I look like what James is describing? And if not, why? Why is it so easy for us to talk about people behind their backs? Why is it so easy for us to insult our brothers and sisters in Christ? Why do we masquerade gossip as prayer requests? Why do we talk the way the world talks? Are we building each other up with our words of encouragement? Why not? Are we praying for one another? I mean, that's a novel idea. How about we actually prayed for people instead of just saying, I'll pray for you? And what do we do when our expectations are met inside the church? Do we resort to complaints and insults? Or downright nasty criticism. But this is where James wants us to be when we come to the end of verse 12, to be talking less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. And so I've got four points for us today. As we work through the text, I've got four points. And so if you want to write these down, feel free. Point one, if left unchecked, your tongue will condemn you. If left unchecked, your tongue will condemn you. Second, it will control you. Third, it will corrupt you. And fourth, it will compromise you. And so if there's nothing else that I want you to take away from today, it's this. I want you to be asking yourself, does the way I talk reflect my faith in Christ? And so here we go. Point one, if left unchecked, your tongue will condemn you. James says in verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. You see, right now we have more access at any time in history to information and knowledge. You wanna become an expert in cooking? Just watch YouTube. Wanna be an expert mechanic? Go creep Reddit. Wanna become a doctor? You can earn a degree from Google. Now, (laughs) You know, because we've all done that. Now, I know I'm bagging out the internet here, but honestly, guys, we, this is what we do, right? We go to the internet to become experts in things. And now, just to tell you something about myself, for the last 14 months, I've been experiencing random bouts of double vision. And when I Googled it, it's called diplopia. And honestly, when it first started happening, I, happening, I did what every normal human does when a medical condition pops up. 
I went and contacted Dr. Google, and according to him, I have a brain tumor, and I should have been dead 52 weeks ago. <laughs> oh, you laugh. No, I, no, no, I don't have a brain tumor. In reality, I Googled just enough to become dangerous, but looking at a web page for 15 minutes does not make me an expert ophthalmologist. But before I went into full-time ministry, I was an IT admin for 15 years. And as an IT admin, I knew enough to stand my ground, to defend what I understood, and to teach correctly those people who wanted to learn more about computers. And I understood that the, the more I learned, the more I, more I became proficient and knowledgeable in my area, the, the stricter the judgment that I would encounter when I taught people to make sure they knew what was correct and what was not correct. But this is also true with the Word of God. This is why James reminds us back in chapter one that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But here James is warning all of us, all right? He's warning all of us on the judgment that happens for those who teach. But I don't want us to get lost in this, all right? Just because James calls out teachers in verse one doesn't mean we get to check out and say, ah, oh, that's for, for people like Matt and Steve and, and, and all the other elders who, who preach and teach. No, because it's very much applicable for us. But he calls out teachers for good reason right? If you were a teacher in the, in the early church, uh, you, you held a, a position of prominence or, or of importance. If you were a teacher, it meant you could read, and that gave you a, a foot up on a, lo- a large portion of society. It meant you, meant, meant you were literate. But because you could read and teach, you also were held with extremely high respect. But it also required a lot of accountability, In James' world, much like ours today, the teachers were the ones to pass along sacred tradition. That was the focus of teachers. It was on prayer and the word. And you see this in Acts 6, when the apostles uh, raised up deacons to take care of the matters of the church so they could focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the show, uh, but I'm watching a show called The Chosen. And there's an actor inside uh, the show called Nicodemus. There's an actor who plays the role of Nicodemus. And he has this, this wonderful conversation with his wife in season one. And, and he's commenting on the beauty of, of the Torah and the beauty of the word and how mysterious it is and how it requires careful attention. And there's some real truth in that. Because the word of God isn't an instruction manual for fixing computers. No, there, there's, these are the words of the living, living God These are the words that have the ability to impact the soul. But to be a teacher would mean you'd have to guard yourself very carefully against pride, selfishness, and feelings of self-righteousness. And so it's not hard to see then, all things considered, that being a teacher required great humility and accountability and, and dedication. And you see, when we express our views, right, We all want that pedestal. We all want that podium to to tell the world what's on our mind. But don't lose sight of of what James is saying. We will be held accountable to that standard, regardless if you're a teacher or if you're just a student or or just a, a person who does whatever in life, whatever podium you preach from, you're gonna be held to that standard because everyone wants that platform. I mean, consider how many politicians or celebrity pastors have been knock down a few pegs because of the words they speak. Or parents, consider your children, right? When was the last time you said something thinking that your kids didn't hear you, but then you hear them repeat it and they're like, but daddy said that. 
Even the world says, better a fool and know it than open your mouth and prove it. And, but Douglas Moo puts it this way. Teachers, because their ministry involves speech, the hardest of all parts of the body to control, expose themselves to greater danger of judgment. Their constant use of the tongue means that they can sin very easily, leading others astray at the same time. You see, teacher or not, we will all give an account for the, every word we speak. This is why Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. You see, there's a significant responsibility placed on those who teach because there's a higher degree of judgment. Their words can and will bring condemnation upon them. And then this isn't the type of condemnation as you think about it with regards to saving faith and God's judgment upon the unrepentant. I mean, after all, Paul says in Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if we use our speech, now listen, if we use our speech and our words to teach downright false things or ambiguous things or things that contradict scripture or that are confusing, for those who, are te- or those who are searching and wanting to know God more, then that's a problem. That needs to be condemned. That's why there's such a weight to it. Because there's nothing more important than knowing about the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank you. Then let us not forget, though, and I'm going to come back to this over and over again. As Jesus said, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. And my friends, hear me when I say this. What comes out of your mouth will be a reflection of your heart. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, a tongue left unchecked will control what comes out of our heart. That's my second point. If left unchecked, your tongue will control you. But don't miss out what James says from verses three to five. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, the tongue is a small part of the body. It boasts great things, but consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. Now, if Jeremiah can remind us how the heart is the most deceptive part of the body, then I think we'll all agree with, the, with what James is saying, that the tongue is the most destructive part of the body. And now, in case you, you hadn't noticed, I did skip over verse 2. I'll come back to that in a second. But starting at verse 3, James introduces a bunch of illustrations over the next six verses, all describing the power and the peril of the tongue. He compares the tongue to a a wild horse, uh, a huge ship, a small spark, a, a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil, and a deadly poison. And he does this to, to draw out some pretty important truths about how we speak and, and the way we say things. But in these two verses, he, he begins with this illustration of, of a bit in, a wild, in the mouth of a horse and, and a lumbering ship being brought under control by a very small rudder. And, and these are really, really simply, simple and profound illustrations to use to, to show how, if you use proper methodology, you can bring your tongue under control. 
You put the bit in a horse's mouth, the bit is attached to the bridle and the reins and wherever the farmer or the equestrian wants to go, he just tugs at the bit and the horse goes in that direction. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. Same thing with the rudder on a ship. Rudder attached to wheel, wheel guides the ship. And that's an oversimplification, all right? Um, but because I'm fascinated with how metal can float on water, <laughs> I decided to look up the biggest ship ever created in human history. Built in 1979 and decommissioned in 2009, the Sea Wise Giant was 1,504 feet long, and it had a dead weight of 564,000 tons. Now, because, well, at least I'm a half Newfoundlander, but everyone here is, you know, new, are new from Newfoundland, and because we have the Titanic in our waters, I'll use that as a comparison. The Titanic was only 880 feet long and had a dead weight of 46,000 tons. So the Seawise Giant was almost twice as long and 12 times as heavy, but it was still controlled by this teeny, tiny, comparatively small rudder. Do you see? If you let go of the reins on a horse, the horse runs wild. You let go of the wheel, the rudder does what it wants and the ship goes in whatever direction the ocean is, is taking it. But the results are the same. You lose control. And the same thing with the tongue. How much more can the human tongue control and overpower an entire person? And this happened to me earlier this week. I won't get into the details, but I'm sure all of us have had moments this week where our speech got the best of us. Maybe on the way to church this morning, you had a massive fight with your spouse or your girlfriend or your friend and you said some pretty awful things. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe you got stuck behind someone actually driving the speed limit, you know, doing the law, or obeying the law, and you muttered under your breath, what an idiot. Or maybe you were creeping Facebook and you saw some old friends that you grew up with and, and you, you're just like, man, he's got a face only a mother could love. <laughs> but let me ask you, let's be real for a moment. What are you using to bridle your tongue? Look at what it says in Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Or how about Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. See, the bit in all of our mouths should be the word of God. And when you trust in him and his word, yes, he will make your path straight, including not only what you do, but what you say and how you say it. Now, I'm not preaching a clean up your act sermon here today, but what I'm saying is this. If you're going to bridle your tongue without the word of God, prayer, or drawing closer to Christ, you're going to have a hard time doing it. But let's come back to verse two for a moment, because James is saying something here that I think we all need to home in on. Verse two, for, if, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, well, he is mature, but also able to control the whole body. You see, back in verse, uh, in verse one, James focuses on teachers specifically, but here he's lumping everyone together, including himself. Now, the NIV, if, you ha if you're reading from the NIV, it might say that, uh, that the, the one who controls his tongue is perfect in what he says, but we all know that no one, no one this side of heaven will ever be perfect in thought, action or deed except for one person Jesus we all stumble in our speech no doubt 
But by controlling our speech, we will also bring the whole body into check. You see, at the surface, at the surface of it all, what we say isn't the problem. I mean, okay, it, it can definitely be a problem, but the way we say it and what we say is ultimately a reflection of our heart. That's where the problem exists. For out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. What, what, what we say, it, like I said, is the outpouring of whatever sin or pain or hurt, rebellion is stored up in the heart. But that can also be the same for every good thing, every encouraging thing, and every uplifting thing we say. But it's only by the Holy Spirit, all right? It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can even have a hope in this world to bring the tongue and the heart into check. It is possible, all right? It is possible, but it's gonna take time. And the more we look upon Christ and imitate him, the more our faith will mature. And the more our faith matures, the more our speech will mature. And the more our speech matures, the more what we uh, do will reflect what we say, but it's going to take work. This is why Asaph says in, in Psalm 73, after contemplating just how wicked everyone was around him, that he only then, after going into the temple, gained an understanding of what was happening. When he spent time in God's sanctuary and learning to pray and, and meditate upon God's word, because he knew the ability for his tongue to corrupt and destroy him was very real. And trust me when I say this, I know this is hard hitting, your tongue can quite literally corrupt you. This is my third point. Your tongue has the power to corrupt. Take a look at what it says in verse six. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, and it sets the course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. You see, if left unchecked, your tongue will both corrupt and set on fire the body at the same time. But this is what out-of-control speech does. It spreads like wildfire. You know, a couple weeks back, as Brother Steve Da was finishing up Joel, he, he made this passing, joking comment, and I totally appreciate it. But I want to bring it up again. He, he, he joked about why Australians are the way they are. It's because the entire country is trying to kill them with bugs and spiders and even in the ocean, sharks and everything. And the whole country is trying to kill the inhabitants. But it's not just with animals. It's also natural disasters as well. And having lived in Australia for seven years, I, I, I've seen the power that a forest fire could have upon, uh, upon the country. In 2020 alone, all right, if 2020 wasn't bad enough, let's add something else to it, 46 million acres of forest were destroyed in Australia. Now you might be thinking, Matt, that's great. I don't know how big that is. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador combined have about 30 million. So it's the equivalent of the entire province burned up in 2020. And that's why James uses the illustration of a fire because our tongue as a small spark can set a large forest on fire. But in verse six, James also does something that's kind of very tricky. Not only is he very generic in describing what situation he's thinking of, and he's not even telling us about, you know, I'm thinking about slander or gossip or backstabbing or just pure insults. He's just, he's being very generic. But he's also very specific on the source of the fire. Now bear with me as I go through this. He's being very generic to highlight that everything we say has the devastating potential to destroy. 
It's no wonder why the author of Proverbs 15 says what he does. A soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, or better yet in Proverbs 10. When there are many words, sin is unavoidable, but the one who controls his lips is prudent. You know, I've been back in Newfoundland uh, for almost two years now, and honestly, the religious landscape hasn't changed that much since when I left in, in 2005. You know, there's a couple new churches that have popped up, but for the most part, it's, it's the same old. And trust me when I say this, there's tons of people in our city, as Steve has alluded to earlier, who A, don't have a church, B, are searching, or are deeply suspicious of the church. And it's not what you might think. It's because of how we speak. It's about how we're talking to each other, listening to each other, engaging with each other, and dare I say it, disagreeing with each other. And as much as the world is at odds and can't agree within itself, I see many people who profess faith in Christ looking a lot like the world does. Instead of acting like ambassadors of a holy God, I see far too many of us acting like assassins of the devil. How easy is it for us to cut people down instead of building people up? How easy is it for us to masquerade gossip through prayer requests instead of actually praying for one another? And if it doesn't get any worse, right? If it doesn't get any worse, James reminds us that our tongue is set on fire by the fires of hell. And I get it. It's a strong language. To compare your tongue and, and the things we say as, as to what comes out of hell. But James wants to be explicitly clear of the dangers of letting a tongue go unchecked. You see, the word hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which simply means the Valley of Hinnom. Now, Gehenna was quite literally a garbage dump on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And it was used for you know, garbage, trash, day-to-day -day things. And not to get all graphic here, but it was also used for child sacrifice, for the dumping of dead animals and executed criminals. And I'm painting a picture here for a reason. The, those in the first century who would, have, who would have read James, they would have understood what he was talking about. I mean, when you consider Robin Hood Bay, our very own dump, that's a palace compared to Gehenna. That's an absolute palace compared to it. But hell is also reserved for Satan and the demons. So when James says your tongue is set on fire by the fires of hell, he's, he's saying that if you're not careful, Satan himself will use it to destroy and corrupt everything around you. And when you give Satan a foothold, you're right back at the garden. You're on the risk of deceiving others questioning what is good, blaming God for your miseries and believing that he's actually holding out on you. And at the end of the day, when the corruption goes so deep, you stop believing that your identity and value is in God and instead in other things. You see, our tongue is the epicenter of one massive ongoing battle. But look at verse seven and eight. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a circus. I mean, like with the whole big top tents and animals, but they're quite fun and really quite mystifying. For years, the main attraction at a circus was watching the ring, ring keeper uh, bring these massive beasts, you know, lion, tigers, and bears, oh my, to either stand on a ball or jump through a flaming hoop. It would be his way of showing uh, that by, how, by his voice and his tongue, he could control these massive beasts that were like five times the size of him. And my point is this, these lions and tigers, as deadly as they may be, are way more civilized and controlled than the tongue of the master who controlled them. I mean, it's easier for us to subdue a wild animal than it is for us to tame a wild tongue. 
and yet the tongue weighs 60 grams. This is why David cried out in Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the doors of my lips. And I get it. I get it. I can relate with what David and James talks about. I've said things I regret. But even the most mature believer will slip up because the tongue is a restless evil set on fire by hell. And even when you think no one is listening, someone is always listening. President Reagan, during a sound check in 1984, at the height of the Cold War, jokingly said, my fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. Nope. There's just some things you don't say. And then there are situations where the answer, there, where there's no good answer. No matter what you say, you, you'll never come out on top. Honey, do you think these pants fit me? There's no perfect answer for that. There's nothing you can say that will satisfy your wife or your girlfriend's question. It's like from Admiral Akbar. it's a trap. So ladies, please don't ask us that question unless it becomes like a verse two scenario and we all stumble in many ways. So just don't ask the question. But jokes aside, everyone from the pauper to the president will slip up. Last point, really quick. Your tongue can be a tool of compromise. Starting at verse nine. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth, my brothers and sisters, but these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening, or can a fig tree produce olives? Or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water? And the answer to all these questions are no. They just no, it just doesn't happen, right? Sweet water doesn't come from a bitter spring. A fig tree cannot, cannot produce olives, nor can a grapevine produce figs. But in the same way, what James is doing here is he's saying an immature faith will only ever produce immature speech. This is why he uses these illustrations. Because as you mature in Christ, your speech should be like sweet water that comes from a sweet spring or like figs from a fig tree. But left alone, it will destroy, it will corrupt, it will act like a wild animal. And if we're not careful, we'll bless God and curse those made by him. As I mentioned earlier, the tongue can be used for both good and bad. There's always a double nature to it. But if you are growing in Christ, spending time in the word, and I'm not talking about, yeah, I've just read my Bible, check that, done for the day, thank you, Lord, let me go on and do my own business. But if you're spending time in the word and you're being led by the spirit, then this double-natured speech should just go away. The tongue, as Osborne reminds us, is a battleground that is at the heart of spiritual warfare. This is why Jesus said, a good tree does not produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree uh, doesn't produce good fruit. A good, per sorry, a good person produces good out of the good sort up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil sort up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. And so where do we go from here? Verses 1 to 12 have been like a kick in the guts for me this week. It's been absolutely challenging. But what do we do with these 12 verses? Let me, let me say it like this. Let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. 
James 3, 1 to 12 should instill in us a deeper sense of humility, both in what we do and what we say. As we imitate Christ, let us imitate him well. Let us never forget that he went through horrible suffering to redeem a people for himself. He endured torture and crucifixion and everything else that went with him dying for his people at Calvary. But he did so without uttering a single threat, charge, or accusation. Instead, instead he prayed, he loved, and he petitioned and pleaded for those whom he would die for. You see, instead of blessing God and cursing man, as James says that we're apt to do, Jesus became the curse and died for man. And so we need to be asking ourselves, does our speech reflect our faith? If it doesn't, give it to Christ. Let us live out Romans 12 and be living sacrifices, not only in what we do, but what we say. Let us conform less and less like the patterns of this world and instead conform more and more to the image, action, and speech of our risen Savior. But let us learn from James 3, 1 to 12. Let us use it to disciple one another. You see, your words can have profound impact on pointing someone in the right direction. In fact, the tongue is so powerful that it has the ability to shape someone's personality. That's verse six. This is why we disciple each other. This is why we hold each other accountable, why we pray for each other, why we carry each other's burdens. We tell each other not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. I mean, imagine if, if everyone actually daily, weekly, monthly, yearly practiced thanksgiving and giving compliments and building each other up. What would the church look like? What would the world see as it looks in upon us as the church? But lastly, let me leave you with a quote from a guy named Stulak. This is what he says. Spread gossip and people will not trust you. Speak with sarcasm and insults and people will not follow you. Yet what is especially on James' mind is not the reaction of others to your speech, but the spreading of sin from your speech to the rest of your life. Be hateful with your tongue and you will be hateful with other aspects of your behavior. If you do not discipline and purify your speech, you will not discipline or purify the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, Lord. Thank you that we could gather as a church family to hear your word preached, to sing praises to who you are in your name. Father, as we go throughout our week this week, may we be reminded of the, the power and the peril of our tongue. May we use our tongue to lift each other up, to pray for each other, Lord, to glorify you and not curse and insult, belittle and demean our brothers and sisters. But Lord, also remind us that we have a risen Savior who has paid for our sins, the things we do and the things we say. Lord, be glorified. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.